Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome again. We're delighted to be joined by another man who genuinely needs no introduction. So again, I'm not going to give him one. Richard no. Thompson. No. We're just so excited to have you here. We are. We're thrilled. Well, I, I, I want an introduction. I'm sorry. Right. Well, I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've been listening to this man's records. Of, I worked it out the other day since I was, since I was about 17, I think. Uh, and in all that time, I can honestly say he's never let me down. Oh, never oh, let me down. As I, as oh, say, and nor has he let me down with the with it, when he finally got into print uh, with his uh, with his with his book Beeswing, and that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, so, where are you, Richard? You're in London. I'm in London. Yes, I'm in North London. I'm in uh, Hampstead. Right, right, right. And, as we uh, speak. And is that where you've been during lockdown? Or you've been all over the place. Well, I mean, I only got to the UK last week, uh, and it was unbelievably um, um, uh, difficult to, to get in the country. <laughs> where, where were you? Were you I, marooned I, somewhere? No, I was in. Um, I was in New Jersey. You know, um, yeah. pretty much, which is my American base. You know, um, but I guess I was there for about the last six months actually. Um, and uh, at some point, you need a change of scenery, and uh, I wanted to come over and do some promotion like this. Of course. And so, um, yeah, but, uh, I've, you know, it's uh, so many vaccinations and, and uh, you know, tests to get in, 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 into Britain. <laughs> oh, but now I'm free. I'm, 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 I'm de-quarantined, or whatever the expression oh, is. Oh, good. Yeah, it's good. To de-quarantine. Right. Well, let's talk about the book, uh, which is, you know, it, it's the early part of your life and career, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you. Tell us about yours. Let's start by talking about your family, because there were quite a few people, entertainers in your extended family of one kind or another. Uh, what kind of music was in the house, your house, when you were growing up as a, as a boy? Well, it was mostly um, records. You know, um, my mum sang like Vera Lynn. Uh, she, she could kind of do Vera Lynn uh, very well. She looked like Vera Lynn. Uh, and she, she had a very, you know, very nice singing voice, just sang around the house. I mean, she, she wasn't on stage or anything. Uh, my dad was a sort of a bad amateur guitar player um, slash policeman. Uh, <laughs> not many people can say that. Um, and, uh, and you used to play Louis Armstrong records, is that right? And do a kind of running commentary you mentioned in the book? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was a nice thing. Um, you know, you know, my father had, you know, in, in among the, the crap, and I do mean crap, there, there was some nice... Um, you know, jazz records. There were Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and uh, of interest to me as an inspiring guitarist, uh, Django Reinhardt and, and Les Paul records. So, so that, that was that was great, you know. And then from, from the other wall of, of my bedroom, uh, coming through the other wall was my sister's records. Um, you know, the the uh, you know the, the Jerry Lee and, and and the Buddy Holly, lots of Buddy Holly. She, she was a huge Buddy Holly fan. So um, that was nice. My father also, um, you know, we're, we're Scottish. So, you know, we, we had Scottish dance music. We had Jimmy Shand and we had um, 
Um, you know, some of my earliest memories are, are of uh, pipers, you know, but bagpipes up, up on the when we went on holiday to Scotland. Uh, some guy just standing up on a hill, you know, you know, playing, you know, and that incredible outdoor thing where the wind kind of swirls the yes. music around, it kind of phases it uh, around. Um, so, uh, you know, interesting mixture, you know, growing up. And, and I think a lot of that stayed with me, really. Uh, but um, the rock and roll was the hip stuff. That was the stuff you identified the to. idea of a, of a guitar hero quite early on, didn't you? You were very attracted to, I think it was Joe Brown really caught your attention. Joe Brown, well, yeah, he was um, local, you know, he, he was homegrown. Um, and he was technically very good, Joe, I think. Um, and you'd see him on, um, I think it was Oh Boy, you know, uh, one of the early... Uh, uh, rock and roll shows um yeah that, that was nice but you know everybody was playing a guitar um all the all the rock and roll heroes you know, were, were you know at least posing with one you know elvis had one slung around his neck and um so did tommy Steele. you know so uh i started asking for a guitar for, for christmas and uh you know I, I got fobbed off with um <clears throat> you know little little plastic toys they did not take me seriously until i was about 11 and then uh a real guitar turned up in the house and I commandeered it and uh, no one else uh, got their hands on it. I have to ask you, did you do the thing that uh, that uh, the rest of us pretenders do, did, which was pose with a tennis racket in front of a mirror? Pretending Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I, I did that. It's um, an important stage to go through. I, th I think it's very, very important uh, that, that you at least... Um, you, you get the look down before you get your hands on an actual guitar. Um, and a tennis racket, as we all know, is very similarly shaped and, and, and it can almost do the job. In fact, if it was strung in a different way, um, you might even be able to play it. <laughs> you know, all, the, all this stringing it, you know, you know grid-wise is completely wrong. You need to string it long-wise. <laughs> so you talk about school and you, we get the impression that you didn't do that well at school and that you're really largely self-educated, as it were, very much like Springsteen and, and Dylan. And, and and musically, you know, apart from, um, you know, David Graham and Pete, Peter Green and, and Howlin' Wolf and the various other things that any aspiring guitarist would be listening to, how did you come across all that interesting, quite esoteric music, Eastern music and flamenco and stuff that, you know, that, that influenced your playing? How did you uh, find those? Well, funny, um... Yeah, I, I think um, any, anything that, that you heard in, that, in those days was exciting and new. So if you heard flamenco, I, I had a flamenco album that, 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 my, that my parents bought for me um, because I was taking classical guitar lessons and, and we did a bit of flamenco in that. We did a bit of rascando and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Uh, um, and... Uh, um, yeah, you know, other stuff just sort of turned up. I mean, I took sitar lessons at one point, 1967. Why That's not? Amazing. That's amazing. As everybody amazing. else did. You inspired know. by what was that? Was that a George Harrison thing, or how did that happen? Inspired by the fact that that one of my managers, Todd Lloyd, um, owned a sitar. Yeah. You know, and and um, you know he'd sit and play and said, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not getting very far with this. Uh, you have a go." So um, he came over to my house, and, and I thought, well, this is fun. Uh, and then um, to Todd said, you know, I've got this friend, um, Nazir, who who's teaches Oriental Studies at London University. Um, you should go and take lessons with him. So I thought, oh, great, you know. So, so, so I get on the train, and, and, and there's Andy, Andy Summers in the carriage. I said, well, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going for my sitar lesson. <laughs> So am I. <laughs> so, so, so Andy and I were in a, sort of a class of two, and um, and uh, but but Nazir also had these wonderful house parties every weekend. He had these incredible concerts of of, um, of, of visiting Indian musicians. I mean, the cream of, of visiting Indian musicians were, were just to do this little um, house concert in, in his front room, and um, uh, so stuff that you'd be unaware of otherwise. Yeah, you, you would not know. This was going on. It would just do this little circuit around the UK, playing to Indian communities. So it wasn't something you'd see at the Albert Hall mm. or anything. Man. So that, that was very enriching, you know. Um, and other stuff. I mean, you know, you, you heard classical music, you know, um, and you, you heard jazz, and, and you heard um, a, a pretty good diet of um, stuff. You know, there, there was a great. Um, speaking of Indian, there was this great band called um, Indo Jazz Fusions. Yeah, yes, yes. But which is like half a jazz band and half half an Indian um, ensemble. And they were absolutely terrific. That that was wonderful stuff. That was um, you know world music, you know um, you know fusion music uh, mm. at a very early point in history. So you say you you uh, ran across people like Andy Summers when you were getting started, uh, and you also earlier than that you you played in the band with Hugh Cornwell. 
yes. the Stranglers. What yes. do you remember remember of that band? Well, Hugh wasn't doing too much strangling in those days, but uh, he did uh, quite a lot later on. Um, that was our school band. Uh, Hugh and I were friends, and uh, he wanted to learn to play the bass, so, so he could be in a band. And uh, and I suppose I taught him to play the bass, and and then um, we added. Um, Another William Ellis kid, uh, Nick Jones, who used to write for the Melody Maker, the son of Max Jones. Max so, Jones' son. That's yeah. Right. Um, so, so we went out as a sort of a you know uh, power trio. <laughs> playing what then? What kind of what kind of were they covers? <clears throat> oh, it was all covers. Yeah, we yeah. were playing. Um, you know, you, uh, you know R and B. Um, um, you know, the, the, the things that the Who were also covering. Things like you know, the Daddy Rolling Stone, songs like that. Um, but um, Nick also had. Uh, uh, access to um you know the, the melody maker 45s that came in every week the the, the demos you know oh, really? that, yeah. that, that, that uh that, that they reviewed and so um he'd find um you know jack of diamonds by ben carruthers and the deep which we used to do um in those days um oh, cool. uh, uh we, we did a song called the real thing which i, I think was it was a kiki d early kiki d b-side or something um so we, we found some obscure stuff which was pretty good for a school band of you know, 15, 16 year olds. Right, right, right. So uh, you were spending a lot of time as you got older, going into London whenever possible and seeing all the all the bands that you could see. Mm. And uh, were you you keeping an eye on the guitar players particularly? Well, probably, yeah. Um, well, I was open to anything, but um, there, there were some very good guitar players, uh, mostly blues-based guitar players. Uh, um, you know, Eric Clapton, obviously. Peter Green, I thought was a great player. Um, uh, Jeff Beck, playing with the Yardbirds, um, were, were all pretty impressive, you know, at the time. So uh, I was learning a lot from them, although I didn't continue down that road for that to, for too long anyway. Right. <clears throat> you saw Jimi Hendrix at one point. You write about <clears throat> making, making you realise, I'm sure it did for a lot of guitarists, making you realise that you had to think very carefully about what it is you were doing because you needed some kind of originality. I mean, he had quite an impact on you, didn't he? I think he did, yeah, um, and on everybody else. Um, it was, I think it was own up time for a lot of guitar players because you suddenly had this guy um, who could upstage you at every turn, you know, yeah. if, if, if uh, First of all, he, he could play better than anybody else. But plus, you know, he could play with his teeth and, and you know, you know, have sex with the guitar and all, all, all kinds of stuff like that. So, uh, you know, you, you were never going to upstage Jimmy. Um, and, and for me, I thought, well, you, you know, um, I, I want to be something a bit different. I want to be something a bit more original. So I'm going to try and uh, have a different style from these other, you know, London-based guitar players. Right. So you, you, so you become a member of Fairpoint Convention, which is a kind of North London suburban band, isn't it? It's formed out of you know people you you bump into locally, mm-hmm. and uh, and you you very quickly make some kind of impression in London on that in that <clears throat> scene, to the extent that uh, I couldn't believe this in the book. You're actually you're invited to Paul McCartney's <laughs> birthday party. Mm-hmm. And and tell people tell us what you did. Well, I got this nice sort of you know psychedelic invitation in the post. Uh, Sandy got one as well uh, for some reason that they picked us out of Fairport, and they probably invited people from the other bands around town as well. You know, um, and I thought, oh, you know, Beatles, bit of a pop band. You know, um, <laughs> do I really want to go? You know, if it was you know if it, if it, if it was Bob Dylan's birthday party or Joni Mitchell's, I'd, I'd be there in a flash, but. You know, the Beatles, I mean, you know, the records sound good, but, you know, is it, is it really, is it art, you know? Is it, is it... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, snob that I was, you know, and, and that's incredibly snobbish in retrospect. Um, I decided not not to go. Um, I, I think I made some lame excuse that, you know, I had a dinner date or something. Um, but it was a bit lame. Um, if you ask me now, I think I'd go. Right. Did you regret it soon after? You must have done. Not soon after. I regret it now. It's, yeah, it's yeah. T- taken 50 years to regret it. But, but there I was an amazing it. snobbery about, smoke, uh, about folk music at the time, wasn't it? That idea that you were slightly above and slightly better than, than, than a lot of the competition. Well, you had, you had that in folk music. And then on top of that, you, you had the extra snobbishness of Fairport. So, so we, we felt ourselves you know, removed from you know, the general scene, if you like, uh, and uh, a bit special. 
you know, we were really into lyrics far more than any other band around London. Yeah. You know, we, we loved our lyrics. And, and we, if we were going to do a cover, we were going to do an obscure cover where we're going to find something. Or you're going to do a cover and do it in French like you did. Exactly, with- yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, if we, if we if we found a Dylan song, then it'd be you know um, from the basement tapes, which no one else had heard at, at the time that, yes. that we, we found them. So um, yeah, yeah, we, we we like to be obscure in our in our uh, in our thievery of uh, of covers. So you talk very touchingly about Sandy Denny, and, and what what was it that made her such an exceptional singer? And what did you mean when you said uh, you were never quite sure which Sandy Denny? you're dealing with you talked about her talking about her personality yeah i suppose you know she's volatile you know uh, she, she could change moods very quickly um uh she goes from, from high to low very quickly and vice versa you know she could be very very funny really funny and uh you know really depressed and upset you know uh, burst into tears at a moment's notice so you, you, you never quite knew when um, and, and, and I think a lot of that, that wrought emotion is it's almost like a Gustav Mahler kind of emotional seesaw, uh, went into her singing. Um, so I sing had this, this extraordinary emotion to it, but, but kind of a rare kind of emotion, um, that I can't compare to anybody else. Um, uh, she, she, she really, uh, in, in, inhabited a song. And once Sandy sang a song, you'd say, well, that's it. You know, what's the point of anybody else singing it? She's absolutely nailed it. And she'd nail it first time through. That was, that was the, the amazing thing was, um, you know, if I took a song to Fairport and Sandy sang it, um, the first time she sang it, she, she would understand the song. She'd understand uh, what the song was talking about. Uh, and she'd invest it with, with exactly the right amount of emotion. And, and that was it. She, she'd done it. It was you know, finished. Well, there were various key moments, like like a sailor's life, when she brought that in, and and, and you all started playing that. And that was a really old mm-hmm. folk song, and that that was a kind of new direction, wasn't it? You immediately followed her lead and tried to work yeah. out an arrangement for it. Yeah, um, because we had so little time to rehearse when Sandy joined the band, where we were playing, you know, all the time, that we, we'd slide her into um, songs, and we'd also take some of her songs that she'd been singing around the folk circuit and um, just wrap ourselves around those. And uh, she's backstage at uh, Southampton University and we're j- j- just sitting there backstage jamming and, and Sandy's singing A Sailor's Life, you know. And we said, oh, that, that's a lovely arrangement. That, that's, that's beautiful. Um, well, why don't we just do it tonight? And we'll see what happens. I mean, we don't really know what we're going to do, but let's start off, um, you know, a cappella, out of time. And then... Um, We'll, we'll kind of bring in a rhythm, you know, and, and and we'll see what happens. So we did it that night, and it sounded pretty good. So um, we, we said to, to Joe Boyd, you know, we need to go in the studio to uh, to record this, and uh, we brought in uh, Dave Swarbrick as well uh, on fiddle, and uh, it was uh, first take basically. Um, was it was the one that kind of nailed it? Do you think that there's there's something to be said for the fact that in those days people worked so quickly? You couldn't kind of second guess yourself. You got on with it, and you mm. just moved on, moved on to the next thing. Was that a good thing? I think it was good and bad. Um, I think that there, there there could have been times, should have been times when we spent a little bit more time on records. I, I think that became more of a problem uh, a bit later. Like when I was working with Linda, where we, we had really uh, less time, less budget. Uh, in, in Fairport, Joe would actually. Um, give us a, a, as much time as we needed on the whole. Um, but it was still a quick process. I think you weren't expected to spend a long time in the studio. I, I think um, uh, it was still seen as, you know, a few takes. Well, okay, that's fine. That, that'll do, lads, you know. That's, good, still, that's good enough. <laughs> it still staggers me, and we were talking about it the other day, that these three records mm-hmm. I'm holding up all Very came nice. out the same year. Yes, they did, 1969. Um well, what we did in our holidays, I think we finished recording in uh, December of the year before. So it, so it came out in, in, in January. January 69. Uh, and then that one came out in May, I think, um, of that year. Well, um, yeah, and, and then Legion of Care came out in, in I think, November. Um, yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Incredible work rate. It's astonishing. Oh, it is, it's well, you know, um, we didn't go into the studio saying, okay, we're going to make a record. We're going to make an album. Uh, we just go in all the time and, and cut a couple of tracks and then cut, cut a few more. Um, 
sometimes after gigs where we go into the studio, you know, like at midnight and, and, oh, really? uh, and, and, and cut, cut for a few hours. Um, so it was a constant process. Um, whenever we had a day off where we just go in the studio and do some more recording. So um, it was almost an unconscious thing that, oh, now we have enough for an album. Um, it was just this, this very slow development of, of, uh, of records as, as, they, as we slowly got through that process. Yeah. I love all the stuff about uh, life in the van. You know, you're constantly touring. It's not true now, you know, modern musicians, you know, but you spend so much time in a van going up and down the motorway and you're yeah. playing these kind of mile-melting games of kind of I Spy and games with number plates and talking about Molesworth, you know, all that. You know. And was that a big part of the band experience? It was really, wasn't it? And, and am I right in thinking that's some of your fondest memories in the book? Well, they are. It was part of the bonding process, I suppose, really. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the fact that it was usually... Too uncomfortable to actually sleep in the van. Yeah, you're you're a transit van with those sort of rows of, of, of seats. It's not like you've got nice airplane seats. Um, oh, that, that came later where we we got a slightly better seating arrangement. But um, you know, it's, it's, you see, you, you couldn't really nod off very easily, so you had to think of something to do. And um, and we just played these ridiculous games, really. Um, yeah, you, know, you invented I, kind of words out of number plates. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, and. Um, you know the the word unhalfbreaking came from one such um, oh, episode. Right. You know where we're we're playing this game called Super Ghosts, which was uh, yeah uh, the um you know the, uh, the um what they, you know James Thurber and, and uh, you know uh, Dorothy Parker. You know where that we used to sit around playing this game where you uh, you know you think of a letter uh, and you but you have to have a word in mind. And then you add to the front or back of that letter, still having to have a word in mind. Um, uh, but you must never complete the word. So you know, so, so you get to B R I C, and 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 what are you going to do then? You know, so um, so so, so something's okay. Half break. I said, I'll put an F F B R I C. You know, so now you can put the K on if you want to. But then everyone else has to know that you're thinking of, of half break, which isn't the word anyway. It's, it's actually two words, but um. We didn't know at the time, and then it got to um, you know half brick in without the G. So 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 Sandy put uh, like an N in front for unhalf bricking, <laughs> um, at which point <laughs> you know the, the game sort of dissolved in in hysteria. That's brilliant. That's where they derived from. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, there is obviously the the tragic incident in the middle of that year, nineteen sixty nine, which is the the van crash on on <laughs> the M one. Which uh, which killed Martin Lamble, who was the drummer, and uh, and and uh, Jeannie Franklin, who was your friend at the time, and this this happens in the middle of this incredibly busy year, and and you, you obviously spend time in hospital, and um, and then you go to the United States, and then you come back, and then you all go down to to um you get it together in the country again mm -hmm. and make legion leave do you think the fact that you you kind of you you're relatively resilient in bouncing back from that terrible tragedy because you were quite young i suppose we were young um well we bounced back but did we i mean uh, i'm not sure that we processed what happened very well um you think you, they didn't send you to therapy in those days, you know, you, you didn't do counseling or something. Um, you, 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 we didn't grieve properly, I don't think. Um, so, and I think the after effects of that were um, long lasting for Fairport. I, I think for a couple of years, we were still in a state of shock. Uh, we were kind of derailed, um, made bad decisions. Um, maybe Sandy wouldn't have left, maybe Ashley wouldn't have left, maybe the band would have been more stable, stayed together longer. Um, so we we were all really um, just you know off kilter for for a while after that, um, and um, you know I, I I kind of wonder now why someone didn't um, deal with that you know um, um, the look at us and say you know the, the 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 these guys are having a hard time we should uh, do something for them but but you know I think it was the post. World War II. It's interesting, isn't stiff it? Stiff upper lip stuff, you know. It is. It, it is. It is. There wasn't you just that get much. On with it. There wasn't that exactly. much of a difference between us and our parents, really. You know. No. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it was the Duke of Edinburgh stuff. You know, just you know, come on, get on with it. Come on. Yes, yeah. it is. And um, you know, as we know, I mean, but people really suffered in, in the two world wars without any any of that 
of that namby pamby you know <laughs> therapy stuff <laughs> that you 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 played america you know in that period uh mm. you know supporting various uh people like jethro tull and tra- traffic what did america make of fairport convention millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yes, it's such unusual music to be playing, you know, at a, before a traffic gig. You know, how, what do those audiences make that? 200-year-old folk songs kind of amped up. Um, they didn't really get it, I, I don't think. Uh, you know, th- they would um, greet us uh, politely and somewhat in a, in a, in a stoned fashion. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't enthusiastic. I, I think they just thought, oh, you know, another band, you know, we'll, we'll get through them to get to, to the good stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think um, uh, the best response that, that we got w- was um, uh, 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 black audiences um, it, it, uh, who who really saw what we were doing like, was not ripping off the blues or R and B. You know, so, they, so I think that they appreciated the fact that we, we, we were trying to to, 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 to not uh, piggyback onto black culture. Um, that was interesting. And and then when, when we played um, the Philadelphia Folk Festival, that, that was a real um like a home audience for us um we had a fantastic response at philadelphia folk fest where like the entire audience was dancing i mean all you know 10,000 20,000 people everybody was up and and, and just, just dancing that that was extraordinary um so that was really our uh, target audience, I think. Um, otherwise, um, yeah, Americans didn't get it, didn't understand it. I thought it was so interesting, going back very slightly, that you, you're talking about the effect of music uh, from Big Pink by the band, you know, which mm-hmm. was a kind of synthesis of, of, of American roots music and folk and blues and Appalachian and jazz and all that, you know. And that had a big effect on you, didn't it, you know, as a group? You know, in some sense, you decided to go off and produce a kind of British or English equivalent of that. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think you know, Big Pink and, and the subsequent album were just so good, and almost, um, uh, almost what Fairport what we're aiming for in a sense um, was, was that kind of, of, of you know contemporary roots approach, where, where you're writing that the, the, these really good songs in the style of this root synthesis. Um, and I think Fairport thought, well, we can't go any further. As, um, as as British imitators of American stars, where we, we have to do our own thing. That was the point where we really just have to shove ourselves in a different direction. Right. So Sandy leaves and, and, and you're in the group with Dave Swarbrick for a short while. Mm-hmm. But then you, you pretty much decide, I'm leaving this group. And you never you were never in a group ever again. Is that because you you decided... <laughs> I can't be in a group. Enough, it requires enough. too many compromises. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I've been in groups since I was about twelve, and, and I, I think I just burnt out on on, on bands, you know. And, and I think I wanted to develop writing a bit more, um, and I wanted to see where that took me. And 
for a while, you know, I was happy to be, well, you say I wasn't in groups, but, but I, you know, I, I played in bands of other people. Uh, I played in Ian's band. I played in Sandy's band. Uh, and, and you know, and then I suppose Linda and I worked as a duo. So then we were more sort of at the helm of a, of a musical entity. Um, and then, you know, I was pretty much solo. And uh, I think once you're solo, it's nice to be solo. And it's nice to do projects sometimes, to do temporary um, affiliations with other musicians. Um, but but uh, at some point, I think, I think your ego... Um, wants you to be um, doing your own thing. I'm sure it's an ego thing. Right. There's a very interesting, you know, lots of interesting kind of philosophies and perspectives about folk music. And one is that mm. um, that the folk world you claim is, is, you feel is rooted in jealousy. Anybody who breaks big has somehow betrayed this uh, egalitarian rule. Mm. Why do you think, why do you think people were like that? Can you talk about, you know, Billy Connolly and people suddenly having a lot of success? There's a lot of resentment, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, I just find it surprisingly bitchy and backstabbing after <laughs> after the real camaraderie of of the London underground scene at the time. Yeah, you know, you felt a real kinship with Blossom Toes and Family. Yeah, and you know Arthur Brown or all these people. I mean, they're just you know nice people that they'd support you to the end. I mean, it's just a really nice um, community. Uh, yeah. The folk music community on the surface, it was absolutely all of that. <laughs> but that there'd be this this kind of bit bitchy element to it as well, which really sh- shocked me. I, I was so yeah, you, you kind of sold out. You know, you sold, you've let people down. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, and and um, you know, you think think of the people who started out on, on the on the folk scene, like you know, Isla Sinclair and you know Barbara Dixon, you know, Billy Connolly, uh, Jasper Carrot. You know, um, were seen as as almost like betrayers. You know, of some 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 vague socialist ideal that was never, never exactly fully explained to me. <laughs> So nobody could have had a chance to have a go at Nick Drake, really, because he could have achieved so much more, you know. And you talk about him and about John Martin. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, with great affection. But but is it fair to say that neither of them developed, as you did, this brilliant way of projecting and presenting yourself and performing on stage? And was that part of the reason why they didn't reach the audiences, audiences as big as, as they could have done? Um, well, I, I think that, that, well, they're different cases. Uh, Nick... Um, just didn't play many gigs. I mean, he didn't play live that much because I, I think he 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 was shy, and I, I think in some way he felt uh, he wasn't in control of, an, of, of, of the of the of the of the, uh, of the auditorium somehow. You know, the, the, so somebody coughed, and, and it's a bit it's a bit, bit chick career. You know, so somebody coughed, and it, it would uh, put him off. Um, <laughs> I know he probably did like six gigs in his life. I mean, you know, speaking of folk clubs, Nick probably played the Cambridge University folk club like twice or three times. I don't know how many times. But other than that, I mean, he hardly played at all. You know, when his album came out in America, A&M Records um, had a cardboard cutout of Nick at the record launch because they couldn't get him to come over and play. So they put the record on with a cardboard cutout of Nick. And um, you know that that was about the the, the summation of his stage presence. Um, I I, I, th- I thought he was very charismatic. I, you know, um, on the one time I saw, I saw him on stage, I thought he was really uh, had, had this charisma about him because uh, he was tall and handsome. You know, and um, and he was kind of interesting to watch. You know, so if he could have just um, uh, you know overcome whatever it was that was uh, stopping him playing live, I, I think he could have done really well. And uh, you don't, you don't have to talk a lot on stage. You know, you, you don't have to be the, the, that outgoing person as John Martin was. You know, John had talked 19 to the dozen between songs and probably there was more banter than there was actual playing because he'd be tuning up endlessly as well. So you'd be telling jokes and laughing and, and tuning up uh, and that'd be about seven minutes and then a song would be three minutes and then there'd be another seven minutes of, of tuning up and laughing and, you know, but but it was fun. You know, it, it was it, it was fun to watch. And, and I, I thought John was really good on stage. I mean, he, he really um, played well on stage. He really projected well. Um, you know, if, if Nick had stuck at it, who knows? But um, yeah, but very contrasting um, musicians. I've got to ask you about this record, Richard, mm-hmm. because I love this record. This is your first solo record. That, that's, and, that's that's the fourth one. You're the fourth person who bought it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so go on, because this is legendarily unsuccessful, commercially unsuccessful record, isn't it? Which I can't help is partly connected with the image on the cover. Tell I us, hope so. 
I hope that's that's part of its uh, its uh, its unique charm. None success. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the image on the cover that, that was a place called Pampersford Hall. Um, 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 that you know the, the Island Records Art Department uh, did drag me out there um, for the photo shoot. The very eccentric place. Uh, Hector Binney was, was the guy who who owned the house. Um, this fabulous uh, collection of um, Oriental porcelain and stuff. Uh, continental porcelain. Um, well, that record, um, well, it's, it's my first solo record. Um, I sort of like some of it. I, I don't like the singing. The singing is re really not very good. Um, uh, it's acquired a reputation among some people. And uh, disappointingly for me, uh, some people say that, that that's my favorite record of yours. Um, and I think, really? You know, you, <laughs> I've, been, I've been working here for 50 years. <laughs> and that's the one you like best? Holy cow. Um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was it was notoriously the, the worst selling album in Warner Brothers history. <laughs> yes, um, for, for, for various reasons, the, the cover may have contributed to that. I, I grant you, um, but but also I think the music was obscure. It was eccentric. Um, I, I was trying to kind of state a, a kind of a, um, um, a sort of an intention of style. I think with, with that record, I was trying to say, you know, this is. Um, the way contemporary music should be. It should be very traditionally based. Um, um, you know, it, it, it should be, you know, expressive of all, all these traditional cultures. Um, um, but somehow it, it was a bit too eccentric for most people and almost too eccentric for me. So that when you, when you made, the first you've got them all haven't you? my goodness great I've got, I've got, yeah, what's a library you have there i literally have them all but all anyway vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> no um this record i was i was intrigued by it's large widely regarded as uh, as one of when you one of the great records and pops up in people's top hundreds and all this kind of thing mm. but at the time you made it didn't come out did it the island shelved it, didn't they? Was it a uh, year or so before it came out? It was at least a year, something like a year and a half. Um, it was an A and R thing, you know. We we had an A and R man who, who I will not mention, um, who didn't like it. He, he was more of an R and B uh, person, uh, and he just he, he just thought, thought it was a bad record. Um, so he sat on it, and uh, when he left, and Richard Williams became my A and R, which just said, uh, well, you know. Um, What's this? What's this record? You know, why is it sitting in the, in the can here? Um, and he listened to it, and he said, "Oh, this, this is good. We should put it out." You know, so um, change of A and R, and suddenly everything um, became rosy again at Island Records. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it did um, not bad. Um, if the if the single hadn't come out at Christmas, it, it, it probably would have done better, and we would have had a higher profile for that record. Right. Right. There's a wonderful bit where you talk about you and Linda and the, and the children moving out to Suffolk, and it's a kind of hippie, hippie dream that you're going to get this plot of land and you're going to build out buildings made of wattle and daub, and you, <laughs> you won't need the the national grid, you won't need electricity, you can generate all your own. And uh, and actually, you didn't know anything at all about farming, did you? No. So <clears throat> so so, at what point did you think you might have been a, a little over ambitious? Well, you know, we're a bunch of townies, you know. There's this uh, Sufi community. Um, it's actually Norfolk first, then I moved to Suffolk after that. But yeah. um, And uh, I think we thought we were, we were going to build this village um, and it was going to be self-sufficient. It, it was going to be off the national grid, um, you know, where we we're going to have our own currency. I mean, all, all kinds of, of, of ideas. Not <laughs> uncommon in the 1970s. I, I mean, you know, we... Absolutely, we, no, everyone was doing it. We, yeah. we laughed. I see you laughing, but actually um, it was, um, <laughs> you know, uh, lots of people were thinking the same kinds Completely. of ideas. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and it was a, you know, kind of disaster in that sense. Um the, the place that we moved to uh, basically had had one toilet. Uh, that, that was the first obstacle. So uh, yeah, we, we we were digging sort of like, you know latrine trenches and things um, to, to to try and find places for people to to send their sewage, <laughs> if you like. Um, and and then uh, yeah, we had, we had forty sheep, and, and the sheep got blowfly. Um, if, if if you let the grass grow too long, if if you put sheep in a field where the grass is too long, the the blowfly can jump off on, onto their backs. And, and they and they start laying their eggs in it on the backs of the sheep, um, and, and we didn't know yet. You had to dip the sheep to stop this happening, you know. Uh, so th then we had to do sheep dipping and all this sort of stuff. And then we thought, you know, we're, we're really, you know, our skills are more, you know, going to Sainsbury's than, than uh, having, to, <laughs> having to disinfect sheep. Uh, this is it's not really. Fast. 
So I think we backed off slowly from all these uh, wonderful idealistic ideas. Um, yeah. Do you think your identification with uh, Sufism, do you think it commercially had any effect on your career? <laughs> well, it could only have a negative effect, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> uh, it probably didn't help, you know. Um, but it was still the 70s. I mean, I think in the 70s, you didn't really care about um, commercialism as such. You thought... Um, you know, uh, we make albums. Everyone's an album band who, who's uh, worth anything. You know, uh, if, if you're you're a prog rock band, you know, if you're Yes, then it's about the album and not the single. You know, if you're Traffic, it's about the album, not the single. Although that they stuck out singles, it, it, that wasn't really the point. It, it was to be an album band, and and then the, the, then you tour the, the states and in, in stadiums and become mega. You know, um, sort of the Pink Floyd model or the Who model, if you like. Um, so that didn't, you know, I, th I think we we weren't thinking along those lines at all. Um, uh, we just thought, well, this, this is the music we make, and if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. Right, and you went off at one point, which I didn't know it. In and you worked in a, a an antique shop, didn't you? Is that right? Yeah. Um, How, what was that like? And did what happened when people came in and recognised you? Did anyone recognise you as the? No, no, no one ever recognised me. No, ever. Um, <laughs> um, well, it was fun, you know. Um, me and my mate Larry, um, who was, uh, you know, a bit of a, a sort of reformed um, uh, villain, actually, um, um, <clears throat> I had, a shop, had a shop in Crawford Street, and uh, yeah. was at a market stall on Church Street off of uh, Edgware Road, and um, and that, that was fun. You know, we do house clearances. You know, well, we we go down Brick Lane. You know, you know, pick, picking up, um, you know, the, the the early bird catching the worm, but the worm usually turned out to be, you know, stolen goods as it as it happened. You know, that, that's where they'd unload all the stuff, um, you know, the small stuff. But before that, they they drove the the bigger stuff over to the continent, and you know, on the overnight ferry. Um, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, um, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, but a year of that was enough for me, and, and I really had to get back to music. I, I was trying to think of something to do that wasn't music for a while. Again, I think it's just burnout, you know. Right. right. And everything had changed, didn't it? I mean, you talk about you know Bohemian Rhapsody, and there was the Damned, it was disco, and you know, mm -hmm. charts are full of records like Save Your Kisses for Me. And did you did you feel that your you know that it might be harder to make your your way in that in that in that market? I don't know. Well, at the point where the book stops, I, I really did feel um, frustrated and thought, well, our audience has disappeared. Yeah. You know, the, the, the old folkies of the 60s are, have actually, you know, settled down. They've got kids now that they don't go out to gigs anymore. Um, they don't seem to be buying any records either. Uh, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to go back to folk clubs? Um, maybe that's what we have to do right now uh, yeah. be because the landscape had changed so much. Uh, and it was punk, which simultaneously was destroying uh, folk music, was destroying the previous generation. But for me, it was also inspirational. So, so while, while, you know, the Sex Pistols were killing our career, uh, they're also pointing the way forwards as far as I was concerned because here was music that was, a, a, again, basic uh, and I thought not that different from, you know, Elvis in the Sun Sessions. It, it, it had a raw intensity, you know. Let, let's get back to that. But it took took us a while to get back to that. Right. The book ends with uh, around about the death of Sandy Denny, which I think was actually 43 years ago today I was reading. Something. Oh, yeah. That's a, which is an awful long time ago. Hmm. Um, you know, why does, why does the book end there? And is there going to be another book? Questions, questions. Let me think. Um, well, I think the book ends there because I really didn't play much in 76. So there wasn't that much to write about. Um, 77 to 80, I didn't feel that, that I liked the records that we made in, in that era, the, the Christmas albums that we did. Um, and I didn't really want to write about them. Um, it, it just seemed like negative. Um, so I would have to pick it up again in 81, you know, 82. And, and, and I thought that was too big a gap. So I thought, well, I'll just finish this here. If there's a volume two, um, well, you perhaps you pick it up in 81. Uh, the tour from hell, as it's popularly known, might be good <laughs> subject matter. But maybe <laughs> perhaps somebody else should write that one. Uh, um, other books, I, I, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> the nice thing about that period is it was very intense. And after that, you know, the 80s, 90s, uh, things got much more spread out. So you'd have to write uh, about a much longer time period 
right uh, to get the same number of pages as uh, as, as Beeswing. Yeah, yeah, and also right. all that, all the drama happens, doesn't it? I suppose more drama in in, in the nineteen sixties and the early Fair, Fairport story. Yeah, I, I think also because you're young, um, you're seeing things for the first time, and then make yeah. a much stronger impression on you. Uh, once you played you know, Scunthorpe for the thirty fifth time, I'm not sure what you're going to write about unless someone gets murdered in the third row. <laughs> you know, what, what, what are you going to say about, about you know, um, you know, the, this this repetitive nature of being on the road. You get a song like Meat on the Ledge, you write about, which is still very associated with you and with Fairport and the whole story. Mm. And uh, and you wrote that in a flat in, is it Brent? Fabulous Brent, yes, yes. <laughs> and and, and you, I think you, you write that you don't really know what it meant. It's only when you listen to it now that you you hear what it means. Is that true? I think it's true, yeah. Um I, th- I think a lot of creativity is, you know, bordering on the on the on the unconscious. It's it's, it's semi-conscious, and some songs are a little bit more conscious, uh, and some songs are a little bit less conscious, and that one's a bit less. Um, so I'm writing almost like automatically, you know, stream of consciousness, if you like. Um, and uh, I sort of know what I'm saying, but I'm not sure what I'm saying. But the, the, I think the fact it's so vague contributes to the longevity of the song. The, the fact that people can, can put their own interpretation on it. Um, and, uh, you know, for some reason that, that song has become anthemic. You know, they sing it every year at the, at the, at the Cropperty Festival. Um, so, so it's kind of escaped me in a sense. And, and it escaped me quite early um, and became public property. You know, I, I couldn't go back and, and rewrite the verses. Um, it, it's too late. You know, it, it's, it belongs to other people. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, people sing it at funerals. Um, I, had to, I had to sing it at my mother's funeral. That was that was really tough. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I can't argue that it means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, and and I'm, I'm glad of that. Um, but, but I can't say I, I wrote it with that intention. Well, songs with a sense of mystery tend to last so much longer, don't they? You know, yeah, people are still so, writing yeah. books about, uh, you know, what visions of Johanna means by, uh, yeah, by, by Bob Dylan, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, you, you know, you, you, you're, it, I mean, it's not poetry, but you, you're just, uh, you know, on, on the edge of poetry where um, you, you can be kind of vague because it's, it's, it's telling the truth more than being truthful in a sense. You, you know, if, if you state the facts, then you're missing the complexity of life. Uh, whereas if you're poetic about it, then you're going beyond words. Uh, you're writing more about something that's unspeakable. So I think a good vague song like Visions of Johanna, <laughs> if yeah. you like, um, enters that world where you can put your own interpretation, like your own spin on it. Well, you must be very gratified by the response to the book. Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's done really well. Um, uh, this week coming up, we're number three in, in nonfiction on, on, in the Sunday Times. Oh, well, that's Staggering, excellent. you know. Yeah. It's so good, though. It's so good the way you write about music, the way you write about the internal dynamic of the band, the way you write about the world around you at the time. It's, it's really original, really refreshing. Gosh, Congratulations! It's a yeah. miracle, so I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and we must uh, we must just mention Scott Timberg, who who you wrote it with. Yeah, um, Scott. Um, I, I would have wouldn't have written it without Scott. Scott. Scott pushed me and shoved me for a couple of years. Um, Scott Timberg, for people who don't know, was a wonderful was a wonderful journalist. Um, wrote for the LA Times for many years. Uh, wrote for the. Uh, LA uh, uh, review of books um, uh, and wrote some books about music as well. And uh, so, um, you know, I finally said, uh, okay, uh, you know, I'll do it, but you know, you, you have to, uh, you have to help me. How, we, how am I going to do this? He said, well, let's do interviews uh, and, and I'll transcribe them and, uh, and clean them up a bit and we'll see what happens. So, but I really didn't like the result of that. There was, there was no voice. There's no kind of author's voice to it. So I thought, well, you know, l- let me write it. And uh, you can come come in at the end of the process and shape it, you know. But sadly, Scott passed away um, before that happened. So, um, you know, I, I lost a good friend, and and, uh, and uh, the world lost a, a fine writer. Oh. Well, that's very sad. Uh, there's the book, Rich Thompson Beeswing, out now. 
uh, you, you won't be travelling around bookshops to sign it because nobody's doing that at the moment. Sadly, no, but the, 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 there are many, many signed, signed copies. Uh, I, I, I signed like thousands, so I, I hope you can get your hand on a signed one if you want it. Available or a if, rare if, unsigned one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, 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 so signed ones are on eBay already for, for 100, 100 quid. Oh, God. oh Lord. <laughs> Richard, thanks very much. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.